I think uh, when Gurdjieff says that he had enemies, he's talking about powers and principalities. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Today, we are pleased to have joining us Alan Francis. Alan has been in the Gurdjieff work for decades. He is the author of this book, Secrets of the Fourth Way, published by Beach Hill. And he has started a school in Valencia, Spain, I believe, the International School of the Fourth Way. So we are going to be talking to Alan about his book and his studies in his school and assortment of other topics. So first of all, welcome to the show, Alan. Um, pleased to have you here. Very nice to be here with you. Maybe we can start out. Let's let's actually start out with the with your school, um, the International School of Fourth Way, and maybe how your background plays into that. One thing I didn't mention was that you are you also started the the first Gurdjieff school in Russia to be open and um, since Gurdjieff and Uspensky left Russia in the in the early uh, in the teens of the 1900s, so could you tell us a bit about your path and how it led you to this school and maybe a bit about the school? Sure. Well, to give a, a brief sort of uh, overview of my life. Uh, when I was, and I know I'm starting back way far, but when I was about five or six months old, uh, I went through a situation where uh, my father uh, had been uh, drunk and was left alone with me at home, and uh, I uh, virtually died. I turned blue and stopped breathing for a period of time. We don't know how long. Fortunately, my mother had a precognition experience and rushed home from where she was and resuscitated me, but it affected my, uh, uh, what's called the reptilian part of the brain, the or instinctive center. And uh, I had extremely bad balance, very bad coordination and dis, sort of disconnection with the world around me for quite a while, which I had to try to work out, not knowing actually why this was happening. Uh, and so that really had, a, I think, a profound effect on me. And uh, some people have said that that's, a, that's something connected with, you know, this uh, process of interest in shamanism as well. But uh, I got through that. But at the very young age, I was wondering why I was here. And, and of course, other people have that experience when they're young. Who am I? Why I'm here? Why is the world so crazy around me? And uh, that was uh, connected with something my father used to recite all the time, which was Shakespeare's To Be or Not To Be. And so when I was young, I would think to myself, to be or not to be, uh, and uh, what that might mean. When I was uh, older, I, got, I started to get interested in uh, religion, studies, religion and philosophy. And finally, I was handed this book, In Search of the Miraculous. I was 15 or 16 at the time. And I started reading it, and, 
and it was like immediately I said, this is it. This is what I want. And uh, I read half of it and found it was a little too difficult for me at the time. But I said, I'll get back to it, which I did the next year. So that started, launched me really on a uh, journey of discovery. I went, uh, I lived in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, I began to look for anyone that might know anything about the Gurdjieff work. And of course, this was before there was any uh, internet or advertising, et cetera, et cetera. So it took me a few years. Finally, I found uh, at UCLA a class uh, where Jim Flynn uh, uh, was uh, there as a guest speaker. And in him, I found what I felt was actually a man you know, someone who had something uh, and, uh, and very simple, very plain and very ordinary. Uh, and then I was to meet uh, his wife, Norma Flynn. The two of them were the, uh, I didn't know at the time, of course, were the directors of the Gucci Foundation in Los Angeles under Lord Pentland. And uh, so then I met his wife and found out his wife a while afterwards, was studying Tai Chi with the same master that I was, Master Marshall Ho, and uh, which was a curious kind of connection because it was like on both these two sides of, of my life, uh, these, these it seemed like these forces were coming together and, and converged uh, so that I began uh, working in the Gajee Foundation in Los Angeles in 1969 and met Lord Pentland in 1970. And uh, there I saw somebody who was uh, extraordinary. So that's briefly uh, what happened when I, when I began. I continued to study in the foundation. Uh, then I started the Gurdjieff Foundation in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and then I studied, started the Gurdjieff Foundation. Uh, it wasn't the Gurdjieff Foundation because I... I, I quickly left the foundation after I had to deal with the politics so much and uh, started the Russian Center for Gurdjieff Studies in 2005. And I would still be going there right at the, this moment, but for the uh, mm -hmm. quarantine. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I, I, I've been going there 15 years and uh, Gurdjieff said, begin in Russia, end in Russia. So I considered this the ending of a cycle, and that is connected then with why I want to set up this new school of the fourth way. It isn't my school, it's Gurdjieff's school. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, s sort of uh, hopefully the helper in continuing his vision, completing his vision, which he couldn't complete at the Prairie, where he had his school, and other people have tried from uh, people in New York and, and uh, the Bennetts and uh, Staveley's Farm, which I've been to also, and uh, in, uh, in right here in Arizona, uh, we had a school of uh, architecture in Gurdjieff in Phoenix under Frank Lloyd Wright and Ogavana Lloyd Wright, who was a, a student of Gurdjieff. So there have been many attempts and this is hopefully an attempt to bring together all of these, all the wealth of experience 
which has accumulated by Gurdjieff's direct disciples and their disciples over the last hundred and so years that uh, that that I think is the uh, could form the basis of a new understanding and a and in a sense a new approach with its foundation in the Gurdjieff uh, teachings. Hmm. So I've I've listened to a few of your inter other interviews um, on other podcasts, and the impression I got is that um, the structure of the of the the school is essentially going to be um, as close, kind of as close to the priory as possible to to try to um, account for and include basically all those various modalities that have been that were used back in the priory and in these um, the the schools that you mentioned that have tried to to recreate it. So like physical work and uh, group work and and uh, mental exercises and and physical work like uh, as in um, like movements or things like that. So, so that would be well. So, can you comment a bit about that? Um, like, what's the what's the standard curriculum that you're that you're planning for uh, for what's to come? Well, our curriculum. By the way, the school is not yet uh, set up. We mm -hmm. we still have to buy land. My general manager is in Valencia now, uh, working on the legal details to start. Uh, the three pillars of our work are to work with the uh, presence of the body. That is to bring my attention into the body, not just to the body, but into the body. And so there are many levels that one wants to be able to be present to. And you might begin with the structural level of the body, this vertical plane, which is materialized in the spinal column. And so when we do Gurdjieff gymnastics, for example, and, and later when people learn, uh, if they learn the Gurdjieff movements, the Gurdjieff gymnastics are about the principles of how to be in the body, the correct alignment of the body, which begins with the spine, goes into the central nervous system, which one then is aware of through the sensations not just the body sensations of touch, for example, but all the sensations, uh, including eyesight, so that I want to live behind my eyes instead of focused out here. I want to be inside. And so we open these doors of perception connected with the body and with the presence so that I say, I am here now. And I include my body, I could also, if I have the attention, can include the space around me. So that outer world and inner world are both included in one. And so that's one of the pillars uh, which we work on. We work on, yes, with physical work, like construction work, garden work, um, but it can be any kind of work with the body, uh, eating, preparing food, all these things are important. And so we come more and more into the body in a very practical way, not in a theoretical way. And then the next part, of course, is, is connecting with the self-awareness. Now, many people don't know the difference between sensation and feeling. These are two very different qualities in us. 
and they both involve being, but feeling is a higher level. It's a level connected with the, uh, what Gurdjieff calls two brain beings, animal world. So I feel myself. Like if you look at a cat, and of course cats are not all the same, but if you look at a cat, uh, you will see that, that they're pretty connected with what other people in the room are doing, how they feel about them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if, if they get a what we call bad vibration from somebody, they react to it. They don't want to be around that person. They mm -hmm. feel the other person. It's not a sensation. It's not like the, a sudden movement. Of course, that could frighten them. No, it's an emanation. It's something from themselves that the animals can feel. So, for example, I have wild, a lot of wild rabbits around here. And when I go outside and I talk to them, they don't just run away. They almost always stop and, and sort of listen. Yeah? And not necessarily to the words, but to the feeling that I'm giving to them. And uh, so that's another level. And, and that we work on very much in the interaction primarily with people, but also can be with animals, also can be with plants, that, that we, we work to what we call externally consider that person. That is, put myself in their shoes for a moment. Let's say they, we are working together, hammering uh, together uh, some studs for a building. And we're working, and I have a good hammer, and the other person maybe doesn't have as much experience with building, and they have a bad hammer. You know, uh, Maybe it's loose on the head or something. And I say, oh, take this hammer. I can do just as well with that hammer. That's, that's not a problem. That would be a simple example of external considering. And, and by that, I'm moving a little bit out of my ego, a little bit out of what we call identification with myself, with my eyes, and so on. And so this is very profound. Working with others is called is the second line of work Gurdjieff speaks about. Mm. And the third pillar really is the, the direct taking in of an impression. Now, of course, this connects with the body and the senses. That's a, a way of taking in the impressions. And in that second part with feeling, uh, one, one can take in the impression of my breath. I am breathing, or is it that I am being breathed? I can be in question about it, what it means. So that in the Gajif work, breath is very important. But in the beginning, Gajif more or less said, uh, stay away from uh, very strong or even violent breathing exercises like you find in some yogas. He said that, that disembalances the whole body because the whole body is connected with the rhythm, the depth, and so on of your breath. Now, this only takes in one aspect of breathing. And I talk about this in the alchemical part, in particular of my book, mm -hmm. that there are a whole, there's a whole sort of octave of energies, starting with the outermost energy, which he calls hydrogen 192. It's not important right now to remember any numbers or anything, but just to give you an idea. And as it comes in, it becomes finer, 96 and 48. 
but it doesn't really enter the body until it gets into the bloodstream. And then it becomes hydrogen 24. And that begins that feeling part. So there's a process of energy transformation. So when someone says, well, uh, conscious breathing is, is like counting your breaths, one, so on, two. That is, is the very crudest part of it. Very, very crude. But if you want to get into where, where you're really creating prana or chi, as we call it in Taoism, then you have to move from hydrogen 48 to 24, to feeling. Then you begin to produce another level of energy. And it goes on from there. That's not the end. Mm -hmm. So lastly, this third part of taking impressions, you can take in the impression of air. And that can go at many levels, much deeper, much finer. You can take in the impression of uh, we looking at each other right now. And, and that is at this beginning level is, is like touch. It's, it's, it's an energy connected with the central nervous system. Touch, smell, the beginning of it, eyesight, taste etc. All that is a part of this beginning process where you consciously are there at the door of perception. Now I'm looking out of my own eyes. Now I'm listening in here. So when you hear the, the, uh, the saying in the Bible, they have ears but do not hear and eyes that do not see, that's what they're speaking about. They're speaking about an internal psychological process. And that's, of course, what's missing in Christianity today. They've, they've lost this connection to the inner meaning of uh, Jesus' words. So do you, um, do you find a lot of, of hunger then in Russia in particular, where the school is, um, just in the, in the courses that you are offering? Because you're, you're offering six-week uh seminars correct well that's going to be for the uh, school in spain yes oh, okay uh, in in russia uh, or work we're the regular group and we meet and we also have uh weekend seminars uh but not not this full program this mm -hmm. is one of the things i've been really wanting to produce is a place where we can have a full program and not just sort of a, a hobby sort of level mm -hmm. of working, you know, to live the work as they did at the Pure and uh, as they did in Essentuki, uh, they, they live the work. And of course you cannot live all the time, like uh, a kind of uh, too serious a person. You have to have fun. You have to have make jokes. You have to, do all kinds of things in order that the system is uh, healthy and happy. Uh, you may not always be happy, but at least you're moving in that direction. So yes, in Spain, we'll have uh, six week uh, workshops. We'll also have longer ones. Uh, I thought that we would uh, have a 10 month program. Uh, I like that because that's uh, sort of the length of the uh, at least the lunar one at length of pregnancy, you know, 10 months. And, uh, and uh, also uh, I, 
I like, uh, I, of course, I didn't, I didn't go to Bennett's school because I was in the foundation and that would have been a terrible sin <laughs> to, to even get close to Bennett at, uh, when I was in the foundation. I have since met uh, Ben and Cynthia Bennett and they're very nice people. Uh, but I read about uh, their school. In fact, I just read about it. And I visited Staveley's school and talked to her a number of times. And I visited uh, other ones besides having a long, long apprenticeship in Los Angeles and visiting some of the uh, related uh, foundation schools. So I've been studying what uh, makes, you might say, a good school. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm going to try to apply that, and with other friends of mine, some people in different parts of the world that also have been in the work a long time, are uh, agreed to uh, help with the creation of the school. I think that's really good. One of the things that um, one of the things that I like to see is um, people collaborating. Like when I, because I haven't been involved, uh, we haven't been involved in like any any official or you know Gurdjieff groups or anything like that so most of pretty much all that I know has been from what I've read or what I've heard from speaking to to people like like we're doing right now Alan and one of the things that kind of breaks my heart like reading the history is seeing kind of the the factionalization and kind of the 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 infighting and the the kind of elitism that kind of goes on which is normal because um that's what people tend to do and but I mean in my mind it would just be great if if people could just kind of put all that behind them behind them for a while and just kind of collaborate and bounce ideas off of each other or or share and kind of network what works and what doesn't so so um i hope that i hope that that's that uh something like that is the is the direction that you guys can go in um by by sharing ideas because um well one of the things i've found just through my own experiences and and reading is that Aside from factionalization, like there are there are all kinds of issues that can, um, like destroy or like almost infect a a, a group or a um, an institution, and oftentimes it's just because there there isn't an awareness of how these kind of processes work and what kind of things go wrong. Like I, I know that I want to just read something short that I think might hint to that in your book. If, just let me find the page here. Um, yeah, page 157. So you wrote, um, this is near the very end of your book, and you write, uh, to be cunning and canning, one must know something of the future, of the coming moves of those who stand in opposition, attempting to block our way. Cunning strategies are the canning of the mind. Just as crucial, one must also have the will to overcome on the level of both physical and psychic forces. And then, a couple pages later, you write, um, oh, no, that's not the one I had. Oh, yeah, in reference to Gurdjieff, um, these gods and their offspring do not, look con- do not look kindly on rivals. Gurdjieff was subject to the wrath and very nearly was killed many times because he would not give up. Fortunately, he had help and an indefatigable wish to create a new arc, a new teaching to this world. So there's probably there's a whole bunch of levels in in that you know we could get into in, in what you said there because um, the forces that well I'll give you my perspective and then maybe you can um, 
tell me if you think I'm right or wrong, um, that there are, there are all kinds of levels of forces of um, things that get in the way of one's own self-development and especially, or maybe even especially the development of a, of a group. Um, first of all, there are just the, the, the inner barriers and forces that we come up against, which can be our own um, uh, like assumptions, preconceived notions of the, the way things are, the image we have of ourselves, the, um, the false image that we have of ourselves, and the, the high opinion that we have of ourselves. And um, so I guess you might call those um, basic, uh, basic psychic forces that we have to overcome in, in, um, in development. But then there's the issues that you have when, we, when you interact with other people. And that's when, that's when the interpersonal conflicts come out and those initial barriers and problems color the way that we interact with each other and lead to a lack of external consideration. But it seems to me, like reading through Gurdjieff's... Oh, sorry through Gurdjieff's life is that it almost seems as if there is a, a kind of cosmic force that is, that doesn't like seeing, um, um, maybe to speak in a metaphor to see the sheep trying to, um, break out of the, the pasture or, or the, the cattle trying to break out of the pasture. Um, do you have any comments on any of that and go as far as you want? <laughs> well, I think you're, you're right. Uh, there are certainly the inner uh, demons that we have, and Gajif says, in a sense, they're even necessary. They're a part of the denying force in us. Uh, so we have a wish to be. Um, I remember uh, I, I founded a drug and alcohol program on Skid Row in Los Angeles many years ago, dealing with uh, addicts of all kinds. And mostly coming out of the jail system, but, but uh, from right off the street. And you see how somebody really wants to get clean from the drugs, to, to reestablish their life uh, and their family and so on. And you see at the same time this, this extraordinary pull uh, to be under the influence of, of a drug or alcohol, so on. And so it becomes this dynamic that is very visible in, in people. But of course, the question is, can I see it in myself? Can I see this pull away from awakening as well as the pull towards awakening? And can I stand in between it because it's both me, you know? If I were to say, no, that's not me, you know, mm. uh, I create this kind of false duality. But the true duality is, yes, it is me. And I need to, like the, some of the ancient statues you've seen uh, with the hands up like this holding serpents or so on and so forth, that, that I am the center of my own cross. And I have to be there in this center between these poles. And by doing that, I will draw in what Gurdjieff calls the third force, or what in Christianity is called the Holy Spirit. I will draw this reconciling principle into myself, which can then transform me between these two forces. And now I have a triad. And she says, nothing, nothing is made without three forces, without a triad. 
So now I begin to value in a certain way this denial force and also in other people. Somebody might say, oh, what you're trying, like I had said to me in, about starting Russia by a high personages in the Gurdjieff Foundation. They said, well, uh, I asked, actually asked if they would help. And he said, well, uh, you know, I don't think I can. That's too big a, too big a project. So you get that, <laughs> and what do you do? You could spend your time saying, well, son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> well, not do anything. That's what I get for asking for help. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I could say, okay, I see. Mm -hmm. I see that point of view. I see what he's saying underneath what he's saying and why he's saying it. Yeah. So I'm learning. Yeah. Thank you for the lesson. Yeah. I'm learning. Mm. And having read uh, and studied Sun Tzu, the great strategist of Taoism in China, and also Machiavelli and, and so on, I understand a little bit about the way these things work. Uh, and so what are you doing? It's, it's almost like Beelzebub coming to the earth. We are like that. We come down to earth and we learn, we learn something, something we would never have learned if we didn't come down to this level and deal with these forces directly. The last thing you were speaking about is again, is something that I have given a lot of thought to and having a, a long-term interest in mythology I've looked at the mythology of many, many cultures, not just the Greek culture and so on, uh, but that, that has a lot of interesting things in it because it speaks about the gods, primarily connected with the planetary world, the astral world, and, and how at one point they, they can be seemingly helping us. Uh, these, of course, are forces we're talking about, personification of forces. And sometimes they are totally against us, just like in Ulysses, which is a fine, fine uh, story to study. And so I think uh, when Gurdjieff says that he had enemies, he's talking about powers and principalities. Mm -hmm. So we work not against ordinary forces, ordinary processes. We work against powers and principalities, which one could also say are the stuff of legend and myth, the gods. And these gods, you know, may be completely capricious. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely seems like it. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. And so Gurdjieff, uh, was of course in difficult situations a lot and uh, not only had uh, three bullets at different times put into him but uh, a number of illnesses and uh, the uh, great car crash he got into mm -hmm. which is so mysterious you know how could he have gotten into a car crash it doesn't seem possible this extraordinarily conscious being mm -hmm. Well, 
what you were saying about the the powers and principalities um well of course just, just for for viewers that may not be familiar with the term I, I believe it originally the first instance i know of that specific term being used is in the letters of paul in the new testament and uh that's the the, the reference that you that you quoted there and there's of course probably a whole a uh, whole bunch of different theories to that we could get into there but what that made me think of was um might be a weird association association or leap to make but um Beelzebub's tales the, the range of let's say mundane worldly things that uh that Gurdjieff discusses in Beelzebub's tales so even just taking it taking it at its surface level narrative um Beelzebub's tales deals with things like war and revolutions um and the the operation of the cosmos and the, the 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 planets and the suns and how those interact with these kind of cycles of cosmic catastrophe and and warfare and mass death and um there seems to be well you mentioned a couple of these things in the book and it seems that that it would be well for me personally i find that if i want to take these kind of ideas seriously then there shouldn't be any kind of um, realm of knowledge that should be off limits or just or kind of ignored. I want to I want to understand everything, right? And well, as much as possible. And so, looking at looking at all of these things together, we find that Gurdjieff was actually really far ahead of his time in his analysis of a lot of these phenomena. Um, I mentioned war and revolution. I don't know if we want to necessarily get into details about that, but he's he's got some very insightful things to say about war and revolution. And like you said, it ties directly into his life, because Gurdjieff wasn't a he wasn't what I would call a, a modern spiritual narcissist who is kind of only only um, interested in their own kind of spirituality and in exclusion to the world around them because. I think, I think what Gurdjieff realizes is that in order to, to develop oneself, you actually have have to have an awareness of what's going on around you. That's why he was reading the newspapers every day, traveling in, through Georgia and Turkey, and uh, in during the the Soviet Revolution, uh, Bol the Bolshevik Bolshevik Revolution, because he needed to know what was going on and where it would be safe to go, and he didn't, he knew that he needed to get people out of there because people um, were turning into monsters. And so he had an awareness of the political situation. He had an awareness of what happens during revolutions, because I think most people don't have any idea what goes on in a revolution. They forget the previous revolutions that happened in, before their lifetime, and then they, uh, they kind of get on board with the, the new revolutionary movement, not realizing what will actually happen, and perhaps even to them in this revolution that they think is so great. So I'm kind of I'm kind of rambling, but um, but I guess for for now I I, I just want to leave it at at that that there is um, well the connection I was trying to make is but is these these powers and principalities it's like we are we might be individually influenced by by some forces that in in the past in mythological terms were called the gods but it also seems to to happen on a on a societal or or world level where Whereas in individually we might be caught up in a, a state of personal um, hysteria or disintegration or addiction, like you mentioned, 
and or, and on the social scale, we can fall prey to a social illness of like a social his, uh, hysteria or madness or or or, or bloodthirstiness and and uh, like reciprocal destruction, as you know, Beelzebub called it. So, I know that I was rambling all over the place, but I just wanted to, to know if you had any if you had any thoughts on on any of those meanderings. Quite a few. <laughs> Great. But, uh, I uh, when I when I'm listening, I I try not to allow. I try to stop thought. Just just listen. So that's a good exercise stopping thought so as far as this uh, this all comes under this idea of the law of sulianensius gurji speaks about where there's a tension between planets and the sun and the earth and the moon and so on and that these are dynamic tensions this is happening now all the time and as the different planets with their different qualities of course we know the idea that mars is, is supposed to be the god of war, uh, okay? But it's a planet. It's a planet with electromagnetic qualities. Mm -hmm. All the planets have them to some extent or another. And as they interact with each other, these fields, they produce what he calls tensions on Earth, but they're not just uh, abstract tensions. They're not just generalized. They're, they're, they have different qualities. So Mars might combine with Jupiter or cross it or something like this, and you get different kinds of uh, interactions on Earth in, in what he calls organic life, all organic life, just as the moon affects the growth of, <clears throat> the growth of plants, for example, the sap rising. And some people say that the moon affects our behavior. Well, you could try to observe that and see if that's true for yourself. But all these dynamics that are occurring now, as we sit here, this moment, we are virtually unaware of. And not only that, as you were talking about, <clears throat> regard to revolutions and war, everybody's always surprised when it happens. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. when Germany was building up its incredible arsenal. And, and, and going into the Sudan, where the, they first invaded, and, and they said, well, some people have threatened German citizens, so we're coming in to defend them. Uh, and Ger Germany had now this, this tremendously big uh, army for them and, and uh, tanks and planes. And uh, Chamberlain in, in England was saying, peace in our time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of the people were believing it. They were believing this, this, this naivete. And so today we're, in a sense, going through some of that same situation. We don't know how far it's going to go. I'm talking about here in America, mm -hmm. where it seems like these tensions have sort of focused, where we haven't had this really since the Civil War. That is really this kind of uh, difficulty in America itself. We've always gone to other places to fight. So now it's in here. It's, it's where we are. And how could I become relatively free in myself, free from the hysteria you're talking about, free from mass hypnosis, mass suggestibility, 
which was a principal concern of Mr. Grzeff's, probably the most important initial concern. Uh, if you are to live normally, or if you are to try to grow your uh, awareness, your consciousness, you you cannot be under suggestibility. This this law it would be considered to be for us uh, connected with the moon. One of the three added laws that are connected uh, to the level of the moon. So now I I look at myself, and I I can remember. I don't know if you ever had this experience. I can remember this total surprise when I was maybe eight years old. And my mom used to always buy this laundry detergent called Tide. And so one day, I don't know why, I said, Mom, is this the best detergent? And she looked and she's very practical, extraordinarily practical person. Uh, so I, I expected she would have a real reason. And she said, I just like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's popular. Yeah. And so I kind of woke up then. Oh, adults don't necessarily know why they do things. <laughs> and before that, I kind of assumed they did. <laughs> so powers and principalities, as you, as you are asleep, they don't give a damn about you. You're like the sheep you're talking about. They're all going somewhere. doesn't matter. They're all going to go to the slaughter. This is quite clear. They can believe that they are something special. They're kings, they're queens, they're lions. Whatever they believe, fine. Let them believe it. Because they're all going to the slaughter. All their life force and energy is going to be taken from them. And they are not going to be moving in this opposing current. But as soon as you begin stepping out of that current, the current connected to sleep, to mechanicalness, as soon as you begin to step that out, you begin to come under not only are you connected then more with the law of fate rather than the law of accident, but you are also beginning to appear as separate from the larger uh, uh, mass of people. And when you do that, if you appear enough, get enough higher, you stick your neck up, you know, then somebody's gonna try up there to mm -hmm. cut it off. And uh, of course that happened to Mr. Gurdjieff. And it, it gives an idea of just how important he was that these forces recognized him and, and tried in many, many times, I think, to uh, do away with him. Mm -hmm. And th that even happens on a, on a, I'd say, a more, uh, a more mundane level. Um, again, in Beelzebub's Tales, uh, it, you don't have to go to Beelzebub's Tales to know this, but in Wars and Revolutions, it is the, it is the, let's say, the, uh, just the good people, the, the people of goodwill, and the people that see what's going on and see the problems with it, who are often the first ones to be targeted and, and taken out of the equation, um, yes. you, you see this in if you if you read about the you know the Great Leap Forward in China or the Bolshevik Revolution or any any of the the big violent revolutions over the past hundred hundred and fifty years, even before that, that this is the this is what happens. Um, so there, but 
there, there's also in, in Gurdjieff's story, um, because as you mentioned that he went, he, he encountered a lot of resistance and enemies, but at the same time he was, he was Gurdjieff. And if anyone knows anything about Gurdjieff, he was a, um, one way you might could it, one way one way you might put it is uh, a master of disguise or uh, uh, a master, a master. Of, <laughs> just a master in general because he 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 was he was cunning he was he was smart like he he was street smart I guess you'd put it today he knew what he was doing and uh, Corey what was the story that uh, that you told me well this just gives an insight into his character about when he was in in uh, in Paris during the Nazi occupation and he was. He was storing some. Uh... Oh yeah, he had. Uh, uh, he was he was hiding illegal currency uh, under his bed, and the I believe the the Nazis came in and they and they found it and they um, and as they were uh, you know trying to intimidate him, he just looked to the people there and he goes, "Good hiding spot, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> just well, completely fearless, yeah, completely so, fearless, yeah. and and then he figured out his way out of the situation. Yeah, and because that, that's what—that's the ama- one of the amazing things about Gurdjieff is he always managed to find the perfect thing to say in the right situation. And that could be—you can look at that from one perspective and see, oh wow, he was—he was so manipulative and uh, and uh, a really shady kind of guy. But on the other hand, um, you watch spy movies and you see that people get into into situations where you require your wits in order to save your skin, in order to you know live another day. Yeah, yeah. And Gurdjieff just seemed to be an expert at that. He seemed to be able to read a situation, um, read any situation, read a person, and know what to say to that person for for whatever reason, whether it was something that they, that they needed to hear for their own development or if it was strictly a matter of what can I say to this person so they don't bother me. So like this Nazi, you know, um, you know, police officer who's coming around, how do I, how do I avoid um, spending the rest of the occupation in prison? Or how do I get through these checkpoints um, in in, uh, in in Russia in the in the uh, yeah in the Russian Empire trying to get out during the revolution? Well, are these guys white Russians or red Russians? Who do I have to pretend to be so that they don't shoot me? And um, that that level of knowledge of oneself and knowledge of others in the pursuit of an aim is something that most people lack. Like you said, Alan, because most people, and we can include like ourselves in in most instances in life, or in many in many ways, are the, are sheep that are simply unaware, and um, and unfortunately that means um, often get in the way. Well, don't know what to do. Basically, don't know how to. Well, yeah, that just leads me to a question that I wanted to ask about. Um, you know, because all the things that you're describing are are situations that would instill an extraordinary amount of fear into anybody and under that kind of pressure you're not going to function in the way that you would think that you would function in that kind of situation yeah, not the way you imagine, imagine it. in your fantasy you're like oh i would say something like that if i were being harassed <laughs> this by, is what i'd tell those stormtroopers but um but yeah you you devote a chapter in in the, your book uh, secrets of the fourth way uh to fear and it's something that comes up in different ways throughout the book is um is how you or what the the meaning of fear is and the experience of fear and i i can't imagine that gurdjieff was um a fearless individual you know like that uh in the sense that he did not feel it but that he 
was such an individual who had attained such mastery over himself, or maybe mastery isn't the right word, but the the proper way to experience um, the you know different parts of his machine that fear wasn't a problem. So could you just talk a little bit about fear and your experiments with fear um, and how it taught you in the past? Yes. It, uh if there's one sort of uh, subject that I spent a lot of time on uh, from the earliest uh, of, in my memory is this subject of fear. And uh, just briefly, uh, when I was a child, as, as I think most child, children, uh, I had uh, fears of the darkness and, and uh, so on. And uh, my situation was a, a little perhaps worse than some because my father was at times very violent alcoholic and so there was this sort of uh, strange juxtaposition between someone who loves you and someone who could be a monster at, 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 an, at a moment's notice but when i was young uh, i really hated that i was afraid you know mm -hmm. I mean, really didn't didn't like it. And one of the things I did with simple things is, uh, at night, if I was alone in, in this apartment, uh, I would walk backwards through this long hallway. And if you watch monster movies, there's always something at the end of the hallway or in the closet. And I'd go walk all the way back backwards into the closet of my room and, and trying, you know, to, to uh, and not be afraid and then later uh, I began experiments and I did things like walking down dark alleys this is when I was like 19 18 19 uh, in Venice California which can be a pretty rough area and I used to walk down at night and I began to find something interesting I began to find that if I tried to walk with a certain presence, that this fear would be there, but I noticed it would heighten all my perceptions. So over here, maybe I heard a noise, tiny, tiny noise. And without the fear, I might not have noticed it. It might not have come up <clears throat> through the uh, gateways of my, of my uh, nervous system and, and, and said to me something. And, and then of course, everything, almost like, uh, uh, you know, almost like being uh, under the influence of a hallucinogenic, that the fear working with these same neurohormones, of course, working uh, began to expand my awareness. So I was kind of walking in this, in this bubble of awareness that extended out from me when, whenever anything any noises or sights or anything happened. And I began to be so interested in fear. And I began to actually question, what is fear? And I realized I didn't know what fear was. And uh, so other times I, uh, I walked uh, in the midst of uh, swarming bees and wasps. Uh, I worked on the prune harvest in Orland, California, where my friend and I were handling these, these plums into prunes. And it's so sticky and so... Uh, sweet that you had wasps and bees on your arms and so I would just 
sweep them off very gently. Never got stung once, never. And, and I became, became very interested in, in this, uh, in almost a communication with the insect world that that allowed, that letting go of the fear, which is blocking any kind of relationship. And then I once, uh, I picked up a rattlesnake that was in the road. And I, I, I certainly don't recommend this to anybody. <laughs> I did a lot of stupid things when I was young. <laughs> and I picked up this rattlesnake, but I was in such a state that I was absolutely certain that this snake wouldn't hurt me. And I picked it up and sort of talked to it and moved it somewhere. And so things like that, uh, you know about my... In from the book, uh, that situation where I was in Mexico and I was up on a cliff mm-hmm. and I nearly died, almost uh, was ready to fall off of this cliff and, and something from within me and perhaps without brought me so that my body moved up uh, by itself and, and uh, saved my life. Mm-hmm. And so I became, uh, I would say, uh, fascinated by what fear really is and how it must have been. This is this is sort of the, the theory I started with after a little while. It must have been designed to increase my awareness, mm. not designed to shut me down. That's stupid. That's that's impossible. You know, it was designed so that I wake up, an instinctive waking up uh, in myself, and. For me, it's completely proven now. I've tested it many, many times. Now, I'm not talking about ordinary worries. You know, I'm worried my boss is mad at me or some crap, whatever. That's not real fear. That's not instinctive fear. That's worry connected with the, with the uh, false uh, work of the emotional center, mostly, uh, and the intellectual center that identifies with some situation in life. It's not life-threatening or anything like that. Uh, so that's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that okay. you have to, have to use the reason of the driver to help you uh, deal with and, and not get stuck in it because it's kind of endless circle, you know, worrying mm-hmm. and anxiety about, about things. Mm-hmm. Well, that reminds me of our talk with uh, Dr. Jim Carpenter um, Jim Carpenter's a psychologist, and he's got a book called First Sight Theory. On and it's his his attempt to create a a unified theory of uh, psi or parapsychological research. And fear plays a big part in it because, um, according to his theory, if I can relate it accurately, that the that there's a the the one of the roles of let's say an extrasensory perception or a, a more, a more subtle perception of reality is to be aware of on a, on a basic level to be aware of dangers, just like we would be um, like, you know, in the forest and seeing that snake, we want to have a, a quick awareness of it in order to get away. But that, that, that there's something even deeper going on to the point where um, we might be, we might have a, a subtle awareness of a, of a, a danger in our emotional lives, like with someone we love when they're in a different city or on the other side of the planet. And so there does seem to be, um, a, a, I'd say that, that there is a, a, an, expand, uh, an expansion of awareness that is intrinsically a part of, 
of fear because um, because of that, just because for one reason on that very basic level to, because it's so important to preserve our own bodies, um, and our own survival to, you know, in order to keep doing what we're doing or to learn even more things. It's like, that's, that's kind of one of the, the prime imperatives, um, of, of life is to keep going as long as possible so that we can interact and learn what we have to learn on this planet. And that fear is, that's one of its, its functions is to to expand the awareness and to, to open the eyes to see an, uh, a wider sphere of, of reality than you are in your just humdrum ordinary um, ordinary existence. So um, I don't know if I if I've yet come to the conclusion that you have, Alan, that it was designed for um, your for our awakening or an individual awakening. The way I see it right now might be that the that that is. Well, it might be a, a uh, it might be a dual a dual design purpose because the the way I originally was seeing it was that that's a, a kind of a a not necessary but a um, a feature that can be conveniently hijacked or hacked to use for that purpose. It's like okay, I'm in this expanded state of awareness now. Um, what if I use it not for simply preserving my own body but for because i have this access to then you know bring in uh, an awareness of myself an awareness of myself in this state of being uh being in a in a fearful state and, and having more access to or more awareness of something and that um that uh well maybe i'll i'll leave it there i don't know where else i want to go with that but uh what would you say to that, Alan? Is it how, or maybe I'll ask you to, to clarify when you say that your your fear was, uh, or that fear was designed for that purpose? Um, can you elaborate a bit on that? Well, I think if you if you reason it out, that uh, why would uh, nature put in me? And I'm not saying nature always does the rational thing. But why would nature put in me this extremely powerful uh, motivator, uh, this extremely powerful energy, just to close me off, just to lessen my awareness in a sense and, and become sort of self-imposed kind of uh, isolation, you know, hide under the blanket, you know. I'll hide under the blanket and that, then I'll be safe. Yeah. Well, of course we know it doesn't help. So to me, unless someone can have an, a better explanation of why fear is in us, why it's, why it's been put into us, then the only uh, thing I can think of is that it was designed to help me, not to harm me, but to mm -hmm. help me. Mm -hmm. And so fear is not my enemy, it's my ally, sort of like Carlos would say. You know, it's, it's really an ally to, mm -hmm. to, as you were saying, to expand my awareness. And maybe uh, it would expand to the extent, yes, that, that uh, somebody close to me by blood, for example, a family member, uh, I might be aware of their situation, a dangerous situation for them, uh, even far away. Mm -hmm. Now, Gurdjieff speaks about something called Hamblazvan, and that has this idea of bled blood in it, Zwan, 
which is sort of feeling for this kind of energy, right? Or almost electromagnetic energy. And that that is the uh, blood of the astral body. And then there's blood of the mental body, higher Hamblin's one. And that these are literally blood for those bodies. And we have some, we already have some. And when we do the Gershif gymnastics, for example, and, and do the Taoist exercises also, these uh, Qigong exercises and Tai Chi exercises are all to help to generate this level of energy, this, this Qi level, this mag magnetism. And this magnetism, as we know, is used by healers throughout the world for, for millennia, for laying of hands and so on, and mm. you know, Qigong healers. And so we develop this other level of blood, which can link us also, uh, not just with family members. I think it's really the original meaning of blood brothers, where you exchange blood, but you're also exchanging this chi, this level of, of higher energy. And then you're linked to that person. And if something happens to them, which is very dangerous or something, you may well receive some uh, uh, cognition of that, uh, just as I we began this when I was speaking about my mother. My mother was in a movie theater. She never goes out because she always had to take care of myself and my brother and work at the same time, do everything. And she takes this one day, you know, to go mm -hmm. to the movie theater. She just wanted to see this movie so bad. I don't know if you can imagine. She was an actress, tried to be. And, and she wanted to see this so bad. And in the middle of the movie, she gets a premonition or a feeling, whatever, and rushes, literally runs back with my brother in her arms to the house. And there I am dying or dead. So mm -hmm. these things do happen to people. I'm quite sure of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we have, such a limited awareness it's almost scary you know and the more we identify that is the more we become egoistic in in our, in our way of of dealing with situations the more narrow is our perception and sometimes we narrow it down so small that it almost disappears mm -hmm. so now we we have this idea and as Lord Pentland used to say, you don't apply ideas to life. You, you must apply them. And so if we have this idea now that there's a totally different dimension of what we call fear, and almost we need a different word because of all the old associations of, of fear. I don't know what, but some really new uh, understanding of this, uh, this emotion and, uh, and how to use it for our, our benefit and perhaps for other people's benefit. Hmm. Yeah. We, yeah. we can not only receive, we can transmit as well. So it's possible to give and receive. That was, by the way, my first lesson from Lord Pentland when I first met him. He came to me after I refused some cookies and things that he was giving to these about eight or nine new people like myself. And I said, no, <laughs> I, I was so enchanted by, by this man. This uh, man was like uh, 
like real Don Juan, you know. And, and uh, he entered the room and he's handing out these cookies and so on. And I'm the only one that says, no, thank you. <laughs> and he came back to me and says, why? Why do you not take one? And I said, I wasn't hungry. And he knew, I knew that that was a lie, you know, but I didn't want to say what it was because I didn't want anything to take my concentration from this phenomena, uh, this man. I didn't want anything. I didn't want any kind of trick, you might say, to, to distract me, including taking a cookie and eating it, you know. No. And he came to me and then he said, you have to learn to give and take at the same time. My first lesson from Lord Pentland. Very, very good one for me. Did, were you going to ask a question, Corey? Or? Uh, no, go ahead. That's I, that's fine. I I hope that we have time to ask, but that, <laughs> go ahead. Well, well, I wanted to to go off on something that you that you mentioned about how Han Bledswine, um Not sure. How how did you pronounce it? Make sure I'll I'll match with you. Han Bloods one, and uh, because um, you've mentioned that there is an alchemical you know section in this book, and it is um, it's a substantial sec section on basically Taoist alchemy, and um, you know coincidentally or or not, just before reading your book, I'd I'd found this one online and decided to read it um, by Wang Mu, the Foundations of Internal Alchemy. Um, it's a book published in Chinese originally, I think, in the, um, it might have been in like the, the 50s or 60s or something like that. But it's a, it's an overview of, I believe, the southern tradition of uh, Nedan, uh, the Taoist practice. So I'd read this one and, th and then, so it was interesting to, to then read your, your book and find some of the, some of the same ideas and, and practices. Um, I want to make a couple observations and then ask you to to um, speak a bit about it. One of the things that you write in the book is that, for instance, in in Qigong and in in Taoist alchemical practice, there is a a focus on um, energetic work, I guess you could call it, and um, like breathing exercises and almost visualization, but also the the experience of um, like moving certain energies along certain channels in the body and, and, um, and through various centers. And then traditionally Gurdj the Gurdjieff work has been associated or has been seen as more psychological and, um, and practical in the sense of it might be a, a psychological principle at work in a direct interaction with someone else or, or within oneself. So you're looking at your, um, your tendencies and the, the emotional kind of programs that that run how you how you behave in certain situations and how the the way that you behave automatically and the way that you don't consider other people etc and that there are various practices for becoming aware of those sorts of things and then um, and etc um, but that in the for instance in these Chinese um, practices it is more of a directly sensed physical physical um, or and or spiritual um, practice and so what was interesting I found about about um, this section in your book is that you kind of put the two together. <clears throat> For instance, in in Taoist alchemy, there are well, there's all kinds of um, 
interesting, beautiful, and en enigmatic images and words to describe various like energy centers or parts of the body, like the 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 uh, there's like the place jade of the pillow. the jade pillow, the yeah. place of the muddy pellet. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, well, I forget most of them, but um, but there are these things called the three barriers, for instance, and they're located at the there there are there are names for them in this book. Again, I'm not an expert. I just I just you know read this book, and that's the only experience I have in it. So so there's but in the in Mew's book on alchemy, the, he talks about the barriers being the base of the spine, um, directly opposite the um, the the solar plexus on the spine and then um the way he describes it behind the the mouth the top of the spine so that would be the jade, the, pillow. The jade pillow right and That's, i would like to see that because i've never read that book okay it's yeah interesting no. it's you, the same you should uh, you should check it out because um you know i i was just interested one day i think it was actually because I'd, i i might have been i might have heard an interview with you where you were talking about your experience with Taoism, and i just read a book on sufi alchemy um by ibn arabi um after um or after and while we interviewed a uh, um uh, uh an ibn arabi scholar stephen hertenstein so i found this book um and checked it out and found out that the, that the publisher is golden elixir press and um i believe the guy that runs that is um yeah fabrizio pregadio and he's got a whole bunch of of books on his website that he's published uh, translations of old um chinese alchemical texts and um uh well very interesting yeah very interesting stuff this is the only one i've checked out but um it was the it was one of the only modern um modern books that was that, that looked that was more appealing to me as kind of like an introduction into the into the into the topic as opposed to getting into the kind of obscure poetry of the of the Chinese alchemical masters where they speak essentially in code, like Mu mentions, but without kind of explaining what it actually refers to. So this is the one to start out with. And um, so um, on those three barriers, like, so as I, as I pointed out, he, he talks about them and he, he basically describes, there's, I think one paragraph really that gets into the barriers. They're mentioned all over the place, but basically describing that in this circulation of energies that, that you will encounter barriers and you have to approach this one in this manner and this one in in the manner of an ox you know with a lot of force and this one in the manner of like uh like blowing water on or blowing air on fire or something like that like so this one gently and this one strongly but then kind of leaves it at that and in your book where where you talk about these things you um kind of meld the the energetic aspect with the gurdjieff psychological aspect which i thought was really interesting so you talk about these barriers um, maybe, um, well, may, could you talk a bit about those three barriers or one or two or any of them, um, just to give an idea of, of what these barriers are and how you relate them to the Taoist practices? Well, first uh, I want to say that, uh, every teacher, every great teacher puts in certain things in their teaching and leaves out certain things. So it's very interesting to look at teachings of Buddha or Lao Tzu or uh, Gurdjieff and see what they put in and what they leave out and perhaps even why they may. Now, often, uh, certainly with Gurdjieff, the things he leaves out 
he puts clues to. Mm-hmm. He hides the dog, <laughs> it's called, or hides the bone, We, the ordinary way of saying it. And one of the things he hid was the connection with Taoism. And he speaks about these two princes that were in uh, the Gobi Desert before the Gobi uh, became sand in the maybe 6,000 BC. And they traveled down the Yellow River into what is now China. And they inter- intermarried with the local people. And through that, uh, they, they, were, they were scientists. They were investigating, for example, the law of octaves and, and, and so on. And you can find the law of octaves in the Taoist system and you can find the law of three in it. It's very easy if you, if you study a little bit. And he said that they then developed uh, these very, very high level of science. And this is what Taoism is principally, is this science. It's a science of, of energy. And, and so he is pointing to that, but many people don't take that as a reason to continue the search. You see, they say, well, here's what Gurdjieff said, search is over. You know, just repeat, <laughs> repeat what he said. Yeah. No work necessary. But then he wouldn't write a book like Beelzebub's Tales, where everything is, is, is now linking into new branches that we are supposed to research. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to wait for a roast turkey to fly in our mouths. So I've researched this, this particular area. There's some areas I certainly didn't research very much. I know very little about yoga, for example. I took a little bit. There's some people that are experts in yoga and, 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 and really learn something through, say, a real source. I don't mean the phony ones like Patanjali. Uh, and in, in this case, what you're talking about is, is looking at real sources of Taoism, not Mantak Chia, you know, not the sort of commercially uh, available stuff. And so if you go into Taoism, you go into this deep search into the energy of the human body and the energy of everything around us. Uh, They were keen at observation. They were keen at sensation. Now you begin to see, oh, gee, that sounds a little bit like Mr. Gurdjieff. Yes, very much like Mr. Gurdjieff. And so we begin to study the energetic pathways, which he almost totally leaves out. If you look at my book, I mentioned a couple instances but then Madame talks about, and Michelle de Salzman talks about the axis of attention. Well, what is the axis of attention? It's the axis of the conscious force coming down through us, yeah? and, and so on. And so that's the central channel. But then why not speak about the branches of that central channel, as I do, like in the Gurdjieff gymnastics class on Saturday? We have these eight main branches extraordinary vessels where this higher chi, this jing chi spreads out through our body and which we need it to be unblocked for our health. And also if we want to create a higher body, an astral body, we have to. So Gurdjieff gives this very simplistic, (laughs) sometimes it's almost amusing. He gives this very simplistic, but interesting view of creation of the astral body. He simply says at one point, well, 
get enough of this hydrogen, this higher energy, hydrogen 12, let's say, so that it not only permeates the whole body, and this is important, the whole body must be permeated, not cut off any place, not blocked. And you get enough of it, then it precipitates and crystallizes out of solution. And this precipitate becomes the astral body. That's wonderful. It's true. <laughs> but it's so simplistic, you know. So in, in the Taoist tradition, they really investigate this in a very, very deep way. Mm. Now, in regard to Gurdjieff, Lord Pentland used to say something when I first heard him say, I say, what, what does he mean? I used a slightly different verbiage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, and he said, nobody here practices the food diagram. Now, if you know the food diagram, it, it, it starts with food that you eat, hydrogen 768 that gradually transforms through the system all the way up to what's called C12, which is sexual energy, the highest, most potent level of energy in, in our body. And then it goes on to breathing, as we talked about, breathing consciously uh, and transforming that energy eventually all the way up to what's called SO12, the same level, but different note. And then when I take an impression of myself and perhaps the world around me, I go from 48 to 24 to 12. 48 is where it usually stops, right at the beginning. And the reason it stops is because of what the Asians call the monkey mind. The monkey mind grabs it, won't let, won't let the impression go. Uh, we call it the formatory apparatus. So now we have these three potent energies. And he says specifically, these three must go into the lower abdomen. Exactly what, what is spoke about in Taoism, exactly. And if you follow the, the movement of energy in the, let's say food, you start with Do 768, which in the Taoist system is uh, uh, Gucci, that is the chi that comes out of food or out of rice. And then you go to the next level, it's chung chi. Well, then you continue in the food diagram with ray 384 and so on and so forth, all the way down through till you get to jing chi, which is sexual energy. So it follows exactly, the Gurdjie system follows exactly the Taoist one. And you may find it somewhere else I don't know. I'm not an expert in, in yoga at all. So it may be somewhere in yoga that they have this exact octave uh, connected with uh, digestion assimilation of food. Uh, but I don't know about it. If someone knows, they can inform me. I'd be interested. But it is in Taoism, and he definitely points to these scientific, highest scientific minds he talks about that went into China and uh, the creation of basically a school. And uh, that school eventually uh, became connected, uh, and we know about it from the Yellow Emperor's uh, classic of Chinese medicine, or Taoist medicine, I should say. I don't, I don't equate China with Taoism at all anymore. Uh, so there is this energetic component 
but he didn't want us to focus too much on that right away because we have such psychological problems. Suggestibility, imagination, fantasy, all will enter into this process and distort it, maybe destroy you. So he said basically what the ancient Taoist masters have always said, you don't start learning these things until you are more mature, until you're stable, until the elements in you are, are stabilized and harmonized. Mm -hmm. Then you begin to study this deeper subject. And so that's why I bring it in now, because mm -hmm. I think it's time. And also why in our school, uh, hopefully, which will be uh, starting and uh, beginning of next year in the, near Valencia, we will uh, include that as a part of his teaching, the food diagram and its relationship to, he calls it prana, he talks about prana and, and doesn't use the word chi, but it's exactly the same thing. That, uh, that's a, a good observation, I think, that, uh, that Gurdjieff didn't introduce these things because we have enough kind of psychological problems as it is to start out with. Um, there's a couple things I want to say about that um, that relate to one other chapter in your book where you talk about uh, Kundalini and Kunda buffer. Um, but first is that um, that in all of Gurdjieff's writings, like there, like you said, there's nothing spelled out specifically about like energy pathways or anything like that. There are little hints here and there. There are the two that come to mind are are first just in in Life is Real Then um, only Life is Real Only Then When I Am. Um, when he's giving a couple of the of the exercises and he's talking about the, the, the just the kind of subtle sensation of a, a something that will you know appear and 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 uh, and go to to the solar plexus or up and and it's just it's very subtle like you if you if you're just reading through it like a newspaper you won't notice it or not have any idea what he's talking about but then in the transcripts of his um, of his talks in Paris you see a couple more. Um, explicit mentions of it, and one time he even he even mentions these pathways, and he says, "Oh yeah, there are these pathways." And and in the transcript, he, it says, "Oh, you know, and Gurdjieff traces a, a line on his body." Of course, you don't know what it is because it's just a, a verbal transcript. But he says, "Oh, you have to know which way to go, you know, left or right." And uh, there are a couple of references like that, right? And so so reading this, I'm you know, uh, me having you know the, the mind I do, I'm like, well, I want to know which direction it is, you know, where are these pathways? So. Um, what what it seemed to me was that uh, one of the things that he was doing in the way he taught was to to leave it to leave a lot open to the discovery of the person in question, either through their own research or their own um, experience, uh, like experiential practice, because this will now relate to the to what you wrote about the Kundalini, what Gurdjieff himself wrote about Kundalini, and uh, and his his um, his phrase for for that implantation in, in in humans that turns everything upside down the kunda buffer um, because in well i'll start with just the common conception so there's if you read any kind of like new age website or or if you get into yoga you'll you'll hear about kundalini experiences as this like explosion of energy that comes up from the base of your spine up up through your spine and into your head and it's kind of this it's presented as this is this great enlightened um enlightening moment where kind of now um now everything's great and just so just first of all i'll give my impression is that 
I, I've encountered a few people who who say they have like Kundalini awake, awakenings, and um, I'll just say that I'm not impressed with the with the people who have who have claimed to have Kundalini awakenings. And I think perhaps part of the reason, aside from maybe my own arrogance and and uh, you know high Your opinion of myself, Kundalini yeah, my own Kundalini <laughs> is that is that the as you describe like Gurdjieff's what Gurdjieff says about Kundalini is that Gurdjieff or the Kundalini is actually the like the the power of of um essentially well well maybe I'll, I'll get you to could you alan describe how gurdjieff described kundalini and then um what you write about it in the book of like um of what what might it be kind of from an actual traditional like perspective uh, i know you quote one kind of one writer on kundalini yoga in there maybe you could just discuss a bit about that Well, it's a, it's certainly a, a complicated subject, and I think Gurdjieff says, you know, don't believe me, you know, try to understand these things and check them for yourself, find out what's factual and what isn't. And uh, certainly, uh, one of the things he says, which I think is interesting, and uh, is that the Belzebub's tribe has tails. You know, and and of course, at some point we used to have tails as well, and lost them. And he says, "What a terrible tragedy!" <laughs> you know? Because the tails are the place where, if you look at dogs and cats, they manifest certain certain emotional things through their tails very clearly, and and they it's it, he calls it a, sort of a place where your subjectivity. Uh, can manifest, you know. Of course, our subjectivity manifests in our face, in our, you know, in our mask expressions. Uh, the Kundalini, according to Gurdjieff, is is a mistranslation of something that is supposed to mean something reflecting on itself. So it's, it's, it's like being in a bubble, you know, instead of looking at reality or in a cave, you know, like in Plato, instead of looking at reality, you are looking back at, at, at a reflection in a sense of some, something in yourself and you're projecting various fantasies upon this bubble like a projector does. And so uh, you can't see reality again, like Plato speaks about, right? You can't get these people out of their cave, right? And so Kundalini is something uh, that is connected with this idea of Kundu buffer, uh, a buffer, literally a buffer, something that buffers you from, from seeing things as they are. And uh, he said that this was implanted in human beings. Of course, this is a very strange idea, sort of shocking idea. Uh, and planted in human beings by these uh, powers and principalities. Well, in this case, he speaks about them as archangels you know, who decided that human beings might reject their role at the time, which was basically what, what people are doing now, which is, which is to uh, be uh, parasitically uh, their life force being drawn off from them uh, and for them to have no real possibility of growing. And 
he says that uh, so this organ was placed in people in ancient ancestors and this began to turn their reason upside down uh, they couldn't understand things as they are and of course this means also in from an emotional standpoint your value system so that instead of valuing uh, your soul let's say you value money first not to say you shouldn't value money but it's first and in the bible it says of course you know to gain the pearl of great price you have to sell everything so it is the most important thing from the point of view of ancient esoteric wisdom this pearl of great price which is connected with the pearl and the lotus you might say the the i the real individuality that we should have so this kind of buffer then at some point was taken out according to the story whether you considered it a legend or myth or whatever somehow it was extracted and the only way it looks like that something like that could happen would be through genetic manipulation I don't see that you could just pin the tail on the donkey, you might say. So if this is true, uh, it's very interesting. If it's not true, there's still something that prevents us from seeing reality as it is. And both uh, Gurdjieff and, and Patanjali say there's no Kundalini. Now, Patanjali, to me, is the most important expert on Indian yoga. Of course, as I say, I'm not an expert, so I don't know. But uh, he says there's no Kundalini energy. That's, that's not, not there. What is there is prana. There's only prana and different levels of prana. So if you allow this uh, fantasy to take this prana, and like uh, someone goes to a, a, a terrible, violent movie and, and suddenly they're full of adrenaline, but it's not natural. You can't use it in any natural way. You're sitting there, right? And so it becomes an aberration of your energy and also even affects people's minds. Some people scream in these movies. That's how real they think it is, right? And so it's the same with this Kundalini. They are taking this energy, which is life energy, and they're aberrating it, and, and they're causing a kind of violence that causes, perhaps it causes it to really rise up through the spine into the, into the higher centers. Well, if it does, do you want that kind of, of poison to enter your higher centers? Have you ever seen, there are a number of people who do this Kundalini Yoga and their eyes are like this. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't. No, no. That's quite a sight. I went and visited a number of these different uh, uh, religious and other groups uh, years ago. I, I wanted to see what each one uh, had to offer, uh, what they were doing. I tried to be objective in seeing it, but they definitely looked like they were going through some kind of psychosis. Mm. You know? Oh, are you? Oh, there you are. He's back. Yeah, my battery is just getting low. Um, well, are you? So, how are you? How are you doing for time, Alan? Uh, do you do you want to to um, call it a day there, or do you have some more time to to wrap up? Well, I think maybe we should wrap up. I think uh, that that covered quite a bit of area. 
Okay. Yes. Uh, I just, just one, maybe I was just going to ask go for one one thing on. Um, um, do you have a Patreon or a place that people can support the school uh, websites, all that kind of stuff that you want us to that we can help you out with? Well, I, I have the, this site which which I've uh, pompously named Question and Answer, Master of the Fourth Way. <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> I've actually, and, I've got the link to that. I'll include it in the in the show description. And we also have uh, a group, a general group for people. I have a Moscow group, which is separate, but I also have a general group for people who want to take part in an online group. Uh, and uh, you can ask uh, Ducey about that also, what the actual title is. Uh, we are uh, working very uh, hard to develop this school in Spain. Uh, we consider it very, very important. Uh, it will be my last big project, I'm sure, in my life. Uh, and uh, so if anybody is interested in it, you can contact Lucy uh, and uh, Corcala. He's my general manager, and he's in Spain now. And ask him about how you might uh, either take part or be of some help to it. I would appreciate it. It'd be great. Great. Thanks, Congratulations, Alan. Alan. That's we, fantastic. Yeah. We'll include Lifetime it. Achievement Award. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For sure, you deserve more than that. <laughs> we'll include all those links um, in the show description so people can check that out. Also a link to your book. I want to ask maybe one small request before you go. Uh, and, and you can always put it off for another time if, if you've got to go. But um, you mentioned um, Gurdjieff Gymnastics. And I've, I'd only ever, I've only ever read like maybe... In all the Gurdjieff books I've written or written read, um, one or two references to actual gymnastics. I've seen it referenced, but I, I've never actually been able to tell what it is. Um, in you gave a description, but I, I'd never known what it is in comparison to say um, the movements. Um, before we did the interview, like um, when we were in contact, you you mentioned you mentioned that and that you might be able to give a, a demonstration. Could you show us just one, one example of a, of a, of a gymnastic? Well, yes. And uh, let me move this table back just one second. And I think I can do perhaps, or let's see if I move it around just one second. Yeah, no problem. Oh, I got a lot of stuff on it. <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> Okay. How's that? It's, Wait a minute. Okay, so yeah, that's, yeah. that's good. That, yeah, that's better. Okay. Now, this is not what you would ordinarily call gymnastics, that it's not jumping around or something like that or somersaulting necessarily, although you can do somersaults uh, in it. What, what, can you see me okay? Is oh, that maybe, can you close the blinds a little bit? The sun's a bit, uh, a bit bright behind you. Yeah, that's better. So... This is a, a, more a kind of reorientation of the body. And 
this uh, this exercise was given uh, to me uh, through Lord Pentland primarily uh, many, many, many years ago. And it has many levels, so we're just gonna take the basic level. So here, I want to be vertical. That is, there's a kind of link between gravity and my body, which I'm not very aware of unless I fall down or something. Yes. So now I want to have from this top point, which Madame speaks about as the entrance for higher energy. And then Taoism, of course, is called the hundred meaning points, Bao Wei. That I want this to be, in a sense, as if I'm drawn up and and allowing the fontanelles, right? Like in a baby, allow them to relax and let energy pass down through me. And that would be all the way down my spinal axis to the base. Now in, in our system, of course, it goes to the base and then it comes back up the front of the body. So now we're going to include a Taoist idea, which he doesn't speak about, Bridget, but the tongue should be at the roof of the mouth. Now, this changes your breathing and, and helps to stop thought. So if, if my head is vertical and I can move my head just a little bit just to feel the lateral occipital joint connection between my head and my neck and body, and that should be relaxed. And this is gonna be connected with that third barrier, the crossing here of the left and right side also. Then as I'm drawn up like this, something happens. Your chin will drop just a little bit. Now you don't make it drop. And this is very important. This is kind of non-doing once you get here. You might say this doing is just drawing up, but then there's a cascade of things that happen. My shoulders should relax. My face should relax. My throat, the muscles in my throat, omohyoid, for example, muscles connected to the tongue relax. My chest also is a little bit open and I begin to breathe more from my abdomen. These are all things, including the muscles of the back, the lower back. These are all things that happen as, as a natural cascading effect from this central axis and letting things drop, sink down. But if I try to do this, if I put my chin down or concave my chest, this is wrong. This will not give good results. So it takes a certain patience. Now, if I come into my body and into my spine and I rock back and forth on my ischial bones at the base of my spine, just where that first barrier is. And I'll give this very briefly this time, although you should rock back and forth 49 times, seven, seven. And on 49th or the 50th, depending on your aim, you're going to let yourself stand. Now the 
secret of this or the inner part of this is as I'm rocking back and forth, I'm projecting my standing through the top of my head. So using Disney's term, I'm imagineering. Imagineering. <laughs> so I have to project, I have to be very focused, very relaxed, and then I'm gonna do this on the seventh one coming up. And then I rise through that projection. And down. So that's a very, that's one of them. It's a very simple one mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, but it's very profound because it's, it's dealing with the projection of astral energy with hand blood swim. And then the projection, like a vacuum, is sucking you up into it. Now, what if my life was like that? What if I have an aim and I could project myself? even in walking down the street, uh, then I would be moving much more consciously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it, it's one of the many types of exercises which we explore in the Saturday class. So, well, that was great talking to you. Great. Thank you so much, Alan. Great talking to that you. That was fantastic. Yeah, we could do it for we could do it for hours. There's all yeah, kinds sorry. of different directions we can go to, but uh, but uh, we'll have to be have to be satisfied this time with uh, mm -hmm. an hour and a, an hour and forty minutes. Um, thanks. Oh, that long. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been it's been a while. So thank you again. We will, in, like I said, we'll include all the links um, in the show description, including a link to where viewers can um, get your book and the, get to all of the other websites. So thanks again, Alan, for speaking with us today. And um, yeah, have a great time. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be, you'll be able to get back to Moscow it, yeah. sometime soon, and then and they've got uh, the Spain vaccine, well. so they'll probably be the first ones. Yeah, well, yeah, hopefully. All right, guys, I right. appreciate what you do. It's great. Thank you. Thank I you. Appreciate what you do, right. Alan. Thank you. Take care. Bye.